Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. On this week's show, we have NASCAR President Brent Dewar. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi-Williams. And let's start with YouTube and Turner. What's this all about? Oh, let's start with how excited he is that we have a NASCAR guest. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't it's, wait. It's your time to shine, Bar. Man, I am washing your car for three weeks straight. <laughs> you were too kind to, to book this guy. Put, mark that down. All right. I'll, it'll be out front tomorrow. <laughs> but what about YouTube and Turner? What's going on here? There's an expansion here of YouTube TV. They've struck a deal with Turner to get a lot of their networks, TNT, TBS, CNN, as part of the YouTube TV package. That's great news for sports fans. Turner has... MLB, they have MLB playoffs, they have NBA playoffs, they have March Madness. PGA, college basketball. One bad thing, the price is going up. It was $35 a month. That's going to go up to $40 a month. Uh, getting dangerously close to the cost of cable here, right? Yeah, we say, what does this OTT look like? Mm, let me scratch my head. This, this over-the-top service is starting to look like a cable bundle. So you wonder, where can you make it work? What are the dollars? What are the economics? If you are looking to cut the cord, there are so many packages now. I think, Eben, what do we need to go to Wirecutter? Who's going to give me the best? If this is what I want, how much will it cost me? All fees in. But those numbers are starting to get up there to where the original cable bundle was. And this comes on, on the heels of that YouTube TV deal to to be the broadcast home of the new MLS franchise out in, in L.A., it does seem kind of clear that YouTube may be positioning itself to be the OTT package of the sports fan. Which, which might be good business. And well, might, we knew might not that during business. the World Series because behind home plate, if you were watching those games, there was that huge YouTube ad. I mean, you couldn't miss it. And it was so smart because on the screen it had the little play button like right in the middle of right. your television. So it mimicked the actual YouTube screen. You know, I'm, I'm like, you'd be hitting it. Like, is this real or is this back? So clearly sports is a driver for what they think the customer, who they think the customer will be. Well, I want to go back to what you were saying. It's like, we're now at $40. What's going to be the difference, like you were saying, from a traditional cable package? This is all going to be, what's the differentiator? It's going to be your content. What do you value? What do you see as must-have in your household? If you have kids, maybe it's the Disney channels. If you love sports, maybe it's the ESPN family or Turner. It really just matters what do you value and do the economics make sense. On to our next topic, Fox and the NFL Draft, and I'm sure ESPN is happy about this. Yeah, Fox and the NFL Draft and the NFL Network and the NFL Draft and ESPN and the NFL Draft. It's going to be one of those where, you know, you're not sure if you want to watch the draft, and plenty of people do. It's like the Pro Bowl. You know, you can make fun of it. It's really not an event. You can just wait until the picks are made and find out who your team takes. That seems kind of easy. But, Eben, you've covered the draft. You see the folks with the jerseys. They're there for a weekend of football. But how many places does it need to be? I will say the saddest place in sports on an annual basis is day three of the NFL draft. <laughs> that is uh, that is a, that is a very sad place to be. Um, yeah, this is it's becoming like the state of the union where you flip the channel and it's on every single channel. Nicely done. Uh, there's also reports this week that that ESPN may be losing one of its playoff games. Uh, so it does, and that may be going to Fox as well, NFL playoff games. Worth saying, though, it's the NFL's choice as part of the contract. So exactly. this is NFL doing this, putting a property that most people went to ESPN to view, now also on Fox's shared, and taking perhaps a wild card game. There, there seems to be a trend here. I know day three is sad, but I love Mr. Irrelevant. I, I can't help it. That's I love that guy. Anyway, 
Let's talk he know, about. He knows his because the lions are always. <laughs> yeah, that's right? usually yeah. us. <laughs> On to another topic. Olympic organizers they say tickets are sold, but why do we see empty seats? Why do we see empty seats, Evan? Are the people not there? Uh, You're an Olympic there's, guy. There's, there's, there's a lot of possibilities, right? The, the weather has not been great. There's been a lot of cancellations. Uh, it's, it's, it's freezing cold. For marquee events, like downhill for, skiing. For marquee events, yeah. Michaela Schifrin finally skied uh, this week after a few days of, of delays. Um, the, <laughs> there's other possibilities. Who knows? The folks don't want to turn out. Uh, there's not as much buzz about this it. This is one where a host committee Transit perhaps bought some tickets and tried to give it to schools for kids to come watch. I mean, pro- professional sports teams do that. The measure is tickets sold, not turnstile. Like, what what are the turnstiles? What's the difference between tickets sold and turnstiles? I'd be very interested to see what that is. By the way, I should say that that's according to a New York Times article about this. So, well, North Korea is doing all it can by supplying those cheerleaders in the stands. So, North Korea is doing its part <laughs> to boost those attendance numbers. Yeah. This is going to come to pro sports. You watch. This is going to. We're going to have professional cheering sections. Somebody is going to do it. I. By the way. Your favorite, let's talk about it now, your favorite sport in the Olympics. That's easy for me. It's always ice hockey, NHL players or not. Even I, so? Even now? Even so. I, I oh. like watching. I like the international rink. I like the wider rink. I mean, obviously, I'm an ice hockey fan, but I like to see these, these guys and the women. I was up. I don't want to you know, date this, but I was watching the first USA-Canada women's game. It's a really good rivalry. I don't mind that it's, it's not the men, which some do. I like the rivalry. I like to watch them play. And it's every single time it's close. Yeah, Curl, curling for me. See, for sure. I knew we, we were kindred spirits. Hey, please. This that. guy goes to bars where he throws axes. Uh, <laughs> our thanks to Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Evan Novi Williams. Now, on to our conversation with NASCAR President Brent Dewar. Michael, you are very excited. Giddy. The Super Bowl of auto racing is almost upon us. Daytona 500. The president of NASCAR, Brent Dewar, is here. Brent, thanks very much for joining us. It's good to be with you guys, and uh, we're obviously excited as we get close here to uh, you know, the 60th running of the Daytona 500. Well, you know who's excited? Michael Barr. You have a nice dichotomy here. You've got Michael Barr from Detroit, knows everything about NASCAR. And you've got me, native New Yorker, who really doesn't follow the sport that closely, but has to deal with Michael Barr. <laughs> so what do I need to know about Daytona? Tell me, what do I, I know Michael knows, what do I need to know about Daytona? Well, you need to be closer to Michael Barr, and people like Michael Barr, that's the first thing. Something yeah. never said on yeah. this air. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've got a great fan base, um, you know, I've had the pleasure of... You know, working around the world with the auto industry, and uh, we used to have really passionate, uh, you know, customers that you know love their cars. Uh, there's nothing quite like a, a, a sports fan, and I think you, you you guys both appreciate that. And the NASCAR fan has its own its own uh, passion. They're almost I liken them to like an English Premier Soccer fan. I mean, they're just they consume the sport 365 days of the year. And as we head into the start of a season, and we're pretty excited about the 2018 season, uh, there's this pent up demand when we leave Homestead Miami and we roll into it so uh, I think the most I think the most interesting for you to know is the fans um, we're we're no longer a regional sport we're a global sport you know we're broadcast in 185 countries and territories around the world and uh, we've got a large fan base and one of our largest fan base so I think most people would be surprised to hear is from uh, in, the, in the United States is a is the state of California 
And we've got seven drivers in the race coming up this weekend from California. So we're way more diverse from a population fan base engagement uh, than I think most people would realize. And it's it's exciting. At the end of the day, you know, um, you know, Scott and Michael, it's it's racing and it's fun, and um, and the fans love it. So that's I would say the first thing to start off is is getting to know our fans. I want to explain to people who don't understand the qualifying for just the Daytona 500. Any other race, you have the qualifying where then you have the the top 12 after they run a hot lap and then they move on to try to qualify for that race to win the pole. At Daytona, now yes, the the front row is set. Alex Bowman, by the way, congratulations. Denny Hamlin on the outside. But the rest of the field is set up because of the two dual races. That sets the field for the race. I'm just wondering if that will ever carry over to other big races in NASCAR? Um, you know, Mike, that's a great question. It's unique just to the Daytona 500, that form of qualifying. And, you know, we, we changed our qualifying, as you would know, we changed our qualifying format three years ago to a knockout elimination. And that's been a home run. We, we draw huge TV audiences, you know, from 700,000 to a million will come in and watch, depending on the race uh, on TV, on qualifying in terms of viewers. So we like that format, you know, from three, the countdown to two, to the final 12. What's interesting about the Daytona 500, we do it differently. We did a standard qualifying for the first two. And then we have the, what we call the duels, the Can-Am duels this Thursday. The reason we do that is super speedway racing, and this will be for, you know, for Scott. Uh, it's very different, right? It's the cars are in very close proximity. So they set the cars up very differently. Just to make it really interesting for our teams, we threw a curve at them this year. We have a, a no ride height rule for this year, which sounds very technical. But what it means is they used to set it at a specific level. So we did that for a couple of reasons to uh, allow the cars to be a little bit safer on liftoff. And we can talk about safety at another time. But we, we allow them. And so they, they have the ability to get the cars aligned before the big race on Sunday. And so it's going to be very competitive. There's points on the line towards the championship. Uh, but it's a very interesting format, and it's unique to this. So I would say uh, we, won't, we won't see this transfer to the other races, uh, but we're working to see to keep this format to start the season. See, I can bring this in now and talk about Detroit because <laughs> Detroit is married to NASCAR and it has been ever since the start of NASCAR. Now you're running the 60th Daytona 500. How much support have you gotten from Detroit? Yeah, Michael, we get terrific uh, support from all our manufacturers. And uh, obviously Chevrolet and Ford have been with us from the very beginning. They have huge, loyal fan bases um, in NASCAR. You know, when I was on the automotive side, you know, we sponsored University all sports. Um, the best ROI we had was NASCAR because we could enter, uh, engage the fans directly, and then be active at the at the racetrack. You know, for you, Scott, if you haven't been at the track, uh, think of a tailgate that goes on for three days. Um, you know, three four days, and if you get into the summer months, it's a week where they come with their campers and little villages come and and take over the the community for like seven days as we as we get to it. Um, so so they're really big. You're going to see great activation. Um, our, our third OEM is uh, Toyota, which obviously is very proud to be racing. They 
you know, produce their uh, majority of their cars and trucks here in the United States, and, and it's a big platform for them to race against Chevy and Ford. Uh, we've got a few other OEMs we're in talks with, which we'd love for them to join us uh, back in the platform. We think we've got a, a great story to tell with that. And so I would say all three uh, are highly active, and if you came to the Daytona 500 this weekend, you'll see their engagement. I'm looking out my office at the Toyota Injector across the street from me, which is a branded activity. And, and here in Daytona, we just built a, 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 the only motorsports stadium in the world um, here in Daytona. It's spectacular. And for fans that haven't been to it and have gone years in the past, they're really missing not seeing this new stadium. We are chatting with NASCAR President Brent Dewar. And Brent, you mentioned before your global sport. Everybody likes to say we're global because media scales, media sells. Where outside the U.S. is your biggest fan base? It's a good question. We, we, we you know, we, we kind of are active across. We, a couple of things that, that happened. So I, you know, when I worked, I worked uh, around the world and I spent six years in Brazil and I used to watch NASCAR live, uh, you know, every Sunday in Portuguese. Uh, and, uh, and, and from there, I later ran a European operation, lived in Zurich, Switzerland, and I was watching it live in, in, in Europe. Brazil and Zurich, Switzerland sounds like F1 territory. Yeah, it, it, it is, and it's interesting. Uh, they do a great job, and we, we, you know, we love all forms of motorsports. We think it's an, we're, we don't think we compete. We think we aggregate against each other, and you know, creating motorsports fans, and uh, and so so they do a really good job on the, in those markets. And what we've done is we've taken the NASCAR product internationally, and what I mean by that is we have a development series in Europe. So we race uh, NASCAR Euro. It's a great series. Uh, we race in Spain and France, and we race in Brands Hatch in the U.K. and Belgium. And uh, it's a really good series. We have some of our drivers, more retired drivers, go over and support it. Jeff Gordon was over there, uh, I think, a year before last for the final season. And, you know, uh, Jeffrey Earnhardt's raced over there and Bobby Labonte. And so we're developing it. They love the side-by-side racing. It's a great festival atmosphere. And so we're excited about it. And some of those drivers, um, other top drivers, have come over and raced in the Xfinity Series. Uh, similarly, we have a great series in Canada. Uh, we've got a number of, you know, star athletes come up through the Canadian series. Uh, Cole Pern is the crew chief of the champion, uh, you know, 78 team with Martin Truex last year. He came up to the Canadian series. We've got some drivers racing in the da- uh, Daytona 500 from Canada. And then the other one is Mexico. And uh, we race in Mexico with the NASCAR series. Uh, Daniel Suarez is the graduate from that series, and he won the Xfinity series two years ago and now is racing in the Monster Energy Cup series. So those are the those are the primary markets. We're looking to new markets like uh, China and Brazil, which are huge markets globally. And uh, but ours is a little bit different different than Formula One. We we don't have plans to take our products to those markets, but really to develop a NASCAR culture, NASCAR type of racing in those markets, like we're doing in Mexico, Canada, and Europe. You mentioned Jeff Gordon. I know he's a big fan of Manhattan, as in New York. There's always been talk about NASCAR racing in Manhattan and, and, and becoming sort of a, a, a an affinity for New Yorkers. Where does that stand and what has held it up? We had a couple of opportunities years ago to try to get there, and for a variety of reasons, we just couldn't get it done. Um, so we do have a good fan base in New York. Uh, I mean, I live there 
you know, basically off and on since 2000. And, um, and, and so we've got a number of fans uh, and we bring them to the track. So, so the, the, the New York market, really, their, their closest tracks are, are Pocono. Um, I would take my daughter. She was going to school at the Dalton School in New York. And we'd take a bunch of their friends every year to the, you know, to the, to the Pocono race. It's an easy drive. It's a couple hours out to the Poconos. And uh, so we feed the market that way. I think, I think part of the challenge is, is these are great capital intensive projects, these uh, racetracks. And, um, you know, it's, you know, the value of uh, property in Florida is a lot different than the value of property in Manhattan. So we have, you have to be wise about it. So we're, we're trying to engage the fans to come to us. Uh, you'll see here in Daytona, uh, this, is a, this is a global event, and we have lots of people from all over the world come, including our good friends from the Northeast that want to get out of the cold. And I think it's going to be almost 80 degrees this weekend. So uh, if, it's, if it's chilly where you are, come where I am. Thank, thanks for rubbing it in, Brent. Appreciate that. <laughs> I've done my share of uh, Detroit, Michigan, and New York winters. So, and I come from Canada originally. So, I've, I've, I like this. Uh, I like this time of the year. My house, by the way, is two miles from the Pocono Raceway. So that's my home track, which I go to all the time. And I enjoy the experience, as you were talking about, that it is. It's like one big tailgate party. It is. That's one of those. That's a classic. And, and, and for you, Scott, it's a, it's, we call it the Tricky Triangle. It's not an oval. It's a unique racetrack in the world. And, and the other two tracks that come up is obviously uh, we've got Loudoun in the Northeast, uh, which is a great track. We also have Dover, uh, which, is a, which is a short track. And, uh, and so you get three very different types of racetracks up in the Northeast uh, for those fans. We're talking to NASCAR president Brent Dewar. You have taken over for Mike Hilton, who used to hold that position for many years. What did Mike Hilton tell you, or did he did he give you any advice about this job? So I had the pleasure of working with Mike. I, I came in, um, you know, four years ago, approximately, as the chief operating officer. So. I worked on a lot of the change initiatives and worked closely with Mike, and then Mike moved on to vice chairman. And so we, we had the ability to work side-by-side side together for the last four years, and then they appointed me to president here back in July, which is, which is a great honor. Um, you know, we're a, we're a private family business uh, in a big sport, and so um, the history was important. Um, I'm a fan of the sport, so I'm, you know, I appreciate that. And so, you know, I think... I think what Mike really stressed is, you know, we need to keep our core fan in place, uh, but we have to grow and we have to grow our organically and authentically as we got to go forward with the new fans and not leave our core fan behind. And it's a delicate balance. I saw that in the auto industry as well as, you know, as you develop and design products and you change a Corvette from one design to another, um, you need to bring those fan, those customers with you as to love the new one just as much as they love the, the other. And that's the fine balance. And, and Mike's, Mike's a great partner for me. And if you're at the track, you'll see us both out there together, uh, you know, helping guiding the sport. As you mentioned, that it is a family-owned business, NASCAR, starting all the way from Big Bill France on down till today. What is it like being involved in a family-owned business compared to a public company? Well, it's it's um, it's really it's a great question. It's really interesting. I, I would say you know there's six of us on the board, three family members and three non-family members. 
we have the ability to move with great speed. Um, the difference of working in a big public company, we had a lot of committees and policies, and we, we still structure our company and operate uh, the sport like a public company and all those many benefits. But you, you have the ability to move much faster, um, so which fits our culture because we love speed. Um, and so I think that's the big difference. Um, I think I think the you know the the three family members Brian Lisa and Jim um, they're very complimentary. They have their I wouldn't say swim lanes, but they definitely have their their aspects that they're a focus of expertise, and then we guide across that. Um, so it's 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 gratifying. I enjoyed my previous career, but I could tell you that uh, the ability to move quicker um, is probably it's probably um, you know something I've really enjoyed, and um, and we're racing, and so we're we're trying to guide the the stakeholders of the sport. Now, Brent, I know you can be brand agnostic. What kind of car do you drive? I have one of each of our brands. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got one of each. I've got a Toyota, Chevy, and a Ford. So I'm very proud of that, and they all know that. And uh, we're in talks with other brands, so I bought a fourth one just to, to entice them to join us. Um, What'd you get? Let's hear. Who are you talking get? with? Who, who, who do you like? <laughs> Scott, you're going to have to come hang out with me and figure what that beautiful fourth vehicle is. Just pick me up at the airport um, in that car, and then you know we'll make it easy. But but I asked because of branding, and Monster signed the deal to be your signature sponsor as as a branding tool because they wanted to attach to your brand. They know who your fans are. Are they going to extend? I'm not sure, honestly. Um, you know that we 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 really we really uh, enjoyed the the first year with them. Um, we had a, a number of different companies and brands that wanted to be associated with the sport. And and we kind of held out for Monster. They're, they're very much, their DNA is around motorsports. That's what they do around the world. And um, we, we like... We like the moxiness of their brand a little bit, and quite frankly, we were, we've done a lot of initiatives in recent years to you know, grow the demographic, a much younger, more diverse audience, and, and we're seeing that uh, develop in our fan base. And so we saw this as a really nice uh, extension connection. Uh, and so I offered them the extent, a little extra time to make their decision. Um, uh, whether they want to extend for you know uh, the balance, and and the reason that they're just studying a little more, we're a much bigger scale than anything they've done before. Um, they're a, like I said, a very interesting brand. They like to zig when the rest of the world zags, um, and then there's a place for that. And so uh, we'd be happy and delighted if they do. If they don't, um, it won't be because of metrics and deliverables and all those things. It's it'll be just uh, you know how much they can take on in any given period. So uh, we'll continue to work through with them. Um, we'll get a decision pretty quickly here um, of whether they want to or not. And uh, you know, we're fine either way, if that makes sense. Uh, we'd love for them. And we're, we're excited about 18. They're with us for 18. And I'm looking out my window at a monster-sized monster truck outside my window as they're setting up for their display. So directly across from me is the Sunoco injector. To the right is the Toyota injector. And there's a big monster truck unpacking as we, as we sit here. And they, they do a great job. I, have, I bring a lot of guests to the track, obviously, to promote the sport. And it was interesting. Um, their pre, pre-race activities, you know, word got out, and, and my friends would come, and they all wanted to go see the display, see the activities. And so they bring a really nice activation to the track. And it's in that tailgating aspect, uh, entertaining the fans, engaging with the fans uh, before the race begins. And, and they're just perfect for that. They do a terrific job on that. And so whether they stay as the entitlement sponsor or not, uh, we want them to 
stay in the sport. And that's the kind of conversation we have with them. They were in the sport before they became entitlement on the race teams. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's all good discussions, and uh, we've had a good year with them, and we'll have a great year with them again this year. We are chatting with NASCAR President Brent Dewar. And, and Brent, the common man narrative that's out there is from a media property perspective, NASCAR might be struggling a little bit. If that's a myth, can you dispel it for me? Well, I think it is a myth for sure. I think I think part of it is, um, you know, most of the sports properties, you know, kind of got gauged on two things, right? They got gauged on, you know, TV ratings and attendance. And so during, you know, the 70s and 80s, we built these huge stadiums and um, we're not private-public partnerships like many sports properties around the world. And, uh, and so we've been in a process of optimizing the stadiums, not to downsize them, but to really bring the fan amenities. And that's what you see, the $400 million investment in, in Daytona, the couple hundred million investment in Phoenix, the investments in Charlotte and Texas, by bringing fan zones and you know much more spacious areas to the tracks. So I think some of the media has gone to town on the discussion about attendance and the optics of attendance as we shift to that. And I remember as a kid growing up, uh, you know, you could go to a baseball stadium and you come back, you know, 20 years later, it's a lot different. There's less seats, but it's a much different experience and a better fan experience of different levels. So I think it's that part. The, the second part is around ratings, which are important. I would say ratings are important. It's the fan engagement that's important. And so we still deliver big numbers on TV every single weekend. Um, that's why we have big properties like Fox and NBC wanting to participate with us. And uh, ratings are just sliding around for everybody. Um, you know, the world isn't able to capture how fans are engaging with sports today, whether it's through tablets or mobile devices. You know, we're getting them, but it's still, you know, out of home is still never captured accurately. So there's just a lot of ways. As a former chief marketing officer, the most important thing is fan engagement. And our fan engagement in hours per week are expanding throughout the week. So if we went from, you know, a race being, you know, three, three and a half hours, the primary race on a Sunday, our fans are hanging out and engaging content 10, 11, 12 hours a week. And that's the part as a marketing person I'm looking to do that. Um, you need third-party verification, and that's why we all you know, publish the, you know, the rating scorecards on any given weekend. So we're holding our own on, on those dimensions relative to other sports. But I would say to both of you, and, and to you, Scott, in particular, as a fan, I'm more engaged today than I was during what some people would perceive as the heyday. Because my only chance before is I could watch linear television, or if I was lucky enough to grow up in an area that a track was nearby. And I grew up in the Northwest, and there wasn't a track, so I, I couldn't go to a live race that was nearby. That was my two options, or I'd listen to terrestrial radio. Well, today you can consume the sport 360. You can have TV, which does a great job. You can you can uh, listen to you know Sirius satellite radio anywhere you know that that has it. You can still have terrestrial. You've got digital now today, where we've got a couple million fans every weekend consuming on digital. We've got some of the most interesting fantasy games. We've got a really cool fantasy live game that's coming. And we've got social media where we've got 4 billion annual impressions. We have a highly engaged social media group, which I'm personally part of. So I would say on a, on a, on an, from an analog to a digital world, the engagement's probably as high as it's ever been in our history. It's just that story narrative is hard to tell. Because if someone you try to tell it sounds like you're defensive, and it's just the world of media that's changing and fan consumption. Now, you're locked in with Fox and NBC through 2024. 
Where are you on the arc of sort of the Amazons and Twitters and Facebooks of the world who are showing all of this interest in professional sports? How do you utilize them or can you utilize them at a time when you're locked in with those sort of linear TV folks? Not that they don't have digital properties as well. Right. So we are locked in through them, and they do have the digital and, and the linear, and they do a great job with us. Uh, we, we do. We, we have uh, partnerships with, uh, uh, with virtually all of the social media groups and a variety of different projects. Um, so we did, a, you know, during the playoffs and uh, in, with the agreement of, of NBC, uh, we did a great run with Twitter last year. They, they don't cover the live broadcast, but they, you know, the, the, you know, those snackable moments that we can cover, and we had a we showed incrementality on both sides. And so it's, you know, the partners are willing to work with us on that. Um, we're doing a fantastic program on a Facebook uh, watch with uh, our new driver, uh, cup driver, Daryl Wallace Jr., African-American, racing this, this weekend. And so we've got a program that airs on Thursday with Facebook, and it's going to be, you know, a really strong program that, that shows out beyond the content. Uh, our Instagram last year went through the roof. Our digital numbers on Instagram was, you know, double-digit increase. So, yes, we have we have those moments, but the, but the live broadcast window that three and a half hours goes to those two key partners uh, through that period, and they get they get using the other mediums to help amplify the sport. We're talking the NASCAR president Brent Dewar. One of the biggest things I've always believed about NASCAR and why the NASCAR fan probably is one of the most passionate around, as you mentioned, is because that fan can relate to the cars that are on the track. The first winner, Lee Petty of the Daytona 500. Someone can say, you know, my daddy owned an Oldsmobile just like Lee Penny had. Or you can go on to Buddy Baker when he had a Torino that he was racing there. That connection to the cars is very important. True today, Michael, as it was right in the beginning. And uh, the fans, and we we probably haven't talked about this, but one of the surprises I had when I came to NASCAR five years ago was how deep the research and analytics team we had at NASCAR. We have so much data, and we've arc that changed that in from more data to analytics in the last few years. And we have a fan council that goes, we grew it from 12,000 to 25,000. And so every week we have qualitative and quantitative feedback from these fans. And so we pour through the data and we kind of come back to it. And the connection with the brands, the connection with the manufacturer um, is as high today as it's ever been. And, and they, they understand that that Chevy, that Ford and that Toyota, that they're race cars, but they're race car personification of the cars that they have uh, that they can get. And so the adage of race on Sunday, sell on Monday is true. It's not necessarily Monday because the buying cycle might be one year, two year, three years, but it's it definitely drives the affinity to the product and the brand from when you started as a fan to what we experience today. It's a, it's a modern personification of that. Michael started at the Model T. <laughs> we had to crank them up to get going. <laughs> did, did it come in black, or did you get one of the ones with uh, one of the colors? <laughs> By the way, uh, shout out to Peyton Manning. He's going to be the honorary pace car driver for this year's 500. He's it's great. I, I got a chance to meet him in Bristol. He came out with out to the Bristol race last year uh, in in Tennessee, and he is a one big tall guy. He is big, and uh, he really took in the sport last uh, last summer, and we had a good time with him. So we're we're, we're delighted that he's coming back to to hang out with us and uh, be a part of the event. Now, Brent, you mentioned a race three and a half hours. I look at baseball, looking to cut time from games. Soccer is two hours. Their their demographic is young, young, young. 
is three and a half hours too long for the fans of tomorrow with this limited <laughs> sort of ability yeah. to focus? But it's an interesting question. We came up with a uh, we came up with stage racing last year, which was a uh, unique to NASCAR. And and so what happened in that same kind of research and analytics? The number one complaint we had for other fans was breaking from live racing to go to commercial. Uh, we explained to them that we need commercials. It helps the engine that manages the business. So the first innovation we came up with was this side by side picture in picture, where about three four years ago we started that. You'll see it through a lot of the different sports properties today that just picture in picture. But we still couldn't get all the advertisers to do that. So we sat down with the industry a year ago and we said, well, we have to solve for this. And the solution was stop in stage breaks and come up with the, the breaks. And so in that same point, we went back to our, you know, our fans and said, look, what about the time? Do we have to shorten the races? And it's interesting. One-third it's incredible groups. One-third of our audience wants the races to be the same length or longer. One-third wants them just the way they are, and one-third wants them shorter. So what we're doing is it's the perception of, you know, if, if we can keep the event moving and we have the great content through the stages and we, and we have a mantra that it's like every lap matters. Um, and that wasn't the case in the past. You could kind of watch the beginning and go away and come back. Uh, we don't want that. So the stages matter and they lead towards championships. And so I think we're onto a really, really big idea. And it's, uh, you know, I give the fans a lot of credit, um, giving us feedback and then the industry for innovating to come up with a solution. The 60th running of the Daytona 500 this Sunday, NASCAR president Brent Dewar. What a pleasure to talk with you from a big NASCAR fan. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure, guys. Takeaways. Now, can you say to he to he from a NASCAR fan like me? I am excited about the Daytona. This is the time of the year that I get most excited about any sporting event. And if you're a NASCAR fan, you're with me. And that's what happens with the NASCAR fans in general about how passionate they are. That's what Brent was talking about, how passionate they are about this sport. Oh, there's passion and there's brand loyalty from a business perspective. But I liked the creativity. I was joking about my NASCAR experience being Lightning McQueen. I didn't <laughs> know that there were real NASCAR racers in Cars 3. I didn't know that. But if you want a good way to develop the next generation of fans, video games, movies, and Pixar, that is good. I'm very impressed that they found a way to get that tie-in. My son, my oldest, he'll be 27 years old. I taught him how to count by using the numbers on the side of cars on NASCAR. The first number he learned was 43. Okay, who's 43? That's Richard Petty. Oh, I well, that's good. We could use that know. for number of the week, but yeah. I, I do you have one? I do have a All number right, of the week. Let's hear it. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since the kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week. Very easy, uh, 60. Very easy, 60. Oh, the 60th running. That's correct. Oh, see, you said that. All right, that's I, that's why I know it. Yeah, yeah. I listen when you speak. See? Oh, you know <laughs> Sometimes. <what? laughs> I, wait, wait, let, me, let me amend. I was listening when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> way back 1959, that's when Lee Petty won the first Daytona 500. I can go on. 
to the great champions. We know. People have listened to the show. We yes. know you can go on. Yes, I can. It's, I cannot. They used to. <laughs> there was nothing in the infield. In fact, back in the day during that time, there was a football field in the infield, right, right as you come off the trioval. Right. That's where the football field was. So right where today where you see Daytona and hopefully no one will slide through the grass there, that's where the football You want to be impressed? I'll tell you what I can do. Okay. I can tell you Carl Edwards flipped out of his car. That that didn't he do that? Wasn't that him? Yeah. That's what I know. Yeah. There you go. And if you would have won a Daytona 500, you would have seen him do it right there. There but do some donuts on the infield and yeah. <laughs> You have been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soschnick. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes. 